Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered. My name's Ollie Dugmore and my guest today was a politician. His CV reads like the diary of an eccentric colonial administrator. Tutor to princes William and Harry, governor of a province in Iraq during the war. He walked across Asia, specifically Afghanistan, delivering viral speeches about hedgehogs in the House of Commons. And once upon a time, Brad Pitt owned the rights to his life story. But after being purged from the Conservative Party by Boris Johnson, he had no political home and instead returned back to charity work and podcasting, granting him more influence and wealth than ever before. My guest today is Rory Stewart. Rory, how are you? Very well. Thank you for, thank you for coming. That's okay. It's a pleasure. It's nice to talk to you. Good to see you again. What have you been up to? We're back in London. Well, so the last time we met was almost my last day in this house. So it was just on the, on the beginning of COVID. And then this is almost my first day back in the house. So uh, I've been... Um, in the States, teaching it at Yale University, and I've been living in Jordan. Mm-hmm. And working as well with the charity Give Directly. Exactly, which mostly works, mostly in Africa, not only in Africa, we also work a little bit in the Middle East and Asia. And it's quite a radical idea. We give direct, unconditional cash support to the extreme poor. So instead of traditional charity work, which focuses on you know, capacity building, training people, basically telling people what they need, which I find a bit kind of patronizing and a little bit inefficient. This says people living on less than $2 a day have a much better idea of what their needs are than you or I do. And that actually it's better to just get out of the way and concentrate almost all the money on giving them the cash to buy what they need. And in your work at Give Directly, you're giving cash straight to these people. It's a very radical departure from what you were doing as Secretary of State for International Development, we have all of these incredibly expensive programs, billions of, billions of pounds. What made you think that what you were doing previously was the wrong approach? Yeah, it was a huge change for me. I found it very difficult because initially when I was uh, the minister and then the Secretary of State for International Development, I put so much energy into thinking maybe the reason our programs aren't working is that we're not putting enough we don't know enough about local languages. We don't know enough about local culture. Maybe what we need to do is 
put British civil servants right out there in villages, spending 10 years absorbed to really study these communities and understand what they need. And then I went a couple of years ago on a trip to Rwanda with Give Directly to a very remote rural area where all they had done is turn up and transfer $700 to each household on their phones because mobile money in Africa now allows you to give money directly to people. And I found that within about three months, the whole village had been transformed. There were new roofs, people had cows, small businesses were being set up, there were more kids in school, nutrition was improving, there was more electricity, everybody had a, a toilet. And I suddenly thought, my goodness, you know, we couldn't begin to achieve this with 10 times the amount of money with the traditional development program. You mentioned in the book as well, uh, a program, a, a toilet building program in a school um, that you saw that's probably relevant to this, what we're talking about now. Yeah, well, there's a classic example. So I was, uh, went out to Zambia when I was working for the British government to see a program which was supposed to be uh, installing toilets and wash facilities for children in schools. And I turned up and there was a huge line of white uh, jeeps, land cruisers, and a lot of engineers and UN officials. And then I went to see what had actually been achieved, and it was $40,000 per school. And what had been achieved were two holes in the ground, costing at best a few hundred dollars, and five red plastic buckets. And I said, what's the idea of this? And they said, well, you know, the, the girls take the plastic buckets to the well, which is a few hundred meters away, and they fill up the plastic buckets and bring it back. I said, well, I, I get that, but why did this cost $40,000? And the answer was they'd spent it all on needs assessments, consultations, engineering designs, and finally come up with this. So I said, why don't we just give $2,000 to the head teacher and let him get on with it? And they said, well, you know, he might steal the money. And I'm trying to restrain myself from saying, wait a second, basically, we've stolen the money. You mentioned there as well, very rural areas. Your former constituency of Penrith and the border, equally rural. I'm not saying that, the, you know, the level of deprivation there is the same as in sub-Saharan Africa. But the ideas that you're talking about, the methods that you're talking about, would they apply in a place like your former constituency as much as they do in areas that we're doing outreach? What 100%. So, for example, I suddenly realized that we were doing these big development programs in Penrith. You know, we'd spend seven million pounds of government money on a single project, which was supposed to be regenerating the area. What would have happened if we'd given 10,000 pounds to 700 small businesses and just let them decide what they wanted to do? You know, paint up their front, bring in some more staff, invest in a new coffee machine. Honestly, doesn't matter, right? Their choice, no paperwork, nothing. I bet we would have had more economic return, probably 10 times more economic return than the government spending millions of pounds designing a seven million pound project, which probably wouldn't begin to bring in the number of visitors that people have. It's a pretty radical concept. And I, one of the big lessons from the book, certainly for me anyway, was the way that the British state actually operates. And I think later on, we'll get to ways we can change that, ways we can improve it. But just briefly, I mean, why can't we do that? Like, what's stopping us from doing that now? So, so one of the things I, I'm writing about in, in this new book, Politics on the Edge, is the way in which it doesn't matter whether it's conservatives or Labour who are in power, the system doesn't work. The, the central government, Parliament, Whitehall, is very, very badly designed for the modern world. It's basically a kind of Victorian amateur system which was designed for a much simpler government. Back in the 18th, 19th century, when this thing was at its height, 
the government had a tiny budget and it didn't touch most areas of people's lives. Most bits of people's lives were run by local government. It's at a sort of village, town, city level. And from the 1940s onwards, we've centralized so much power, but the people exercising that power simply don't have the skills or the knowledge to do it effectively. So this book, in a sense, is a plea for trusting local communities, decentralization. I'm, most exciting meeting I had last week was with Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, and Andy Street, who's the mayor of the Westwood Midlands. And they're from different political parties, but you get a sense that doing things on the basis of place is the way to transform and improve things. You walked across Asia, I mentioned in the intro, um, and the places in between your book focuses on Afghanistan. So can you tell me why? I, I walked across Afghanistan. This was just after 9-11, uh, just after the fall of the Taliban. Um, I was young. It seemed like an adventure. I'd been walking for 18 months across Iran, Pakistan, India, and Nepal, walking 20, 25 miles a day, staying in a different village house every night. And I'd been a British diplomat, and I believed strongly that rural areas off the beaten track would tell you much more about a country than you ever saw sitting in the city behind an office desk. So along with all the romantic things of being out in landscape and nature and this great adventure and walking my dog, I had an experience that changed really my whole perspective on politics for the next 10 years or more because I saw how radically different the lives of an Afghan community were. I mean, many of these communities, women had not been more than two hours walk from their village in their lives. Only one person in a village could read or write. There was no electricity for 400 miles. And then I turned up back in the capital city and I heard all my old colleagues, diplomats, UN people, saying every Afghan is committed to a gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, centralized state based on democracy, human rights, and rule of law, and we're going to do a Facebook revolution. Actually, it wasn't quite Facebook. We're going to do an internet revolution. And I was trying to say, wait, 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 there's no internet revolution. There's, there's no electricity. People can't read and write. And as for this idea of a gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, centralized state based on democracy, human rights, rule of law, I can't even translate that into a local Afghan language. I don't know how I'd say that to someone. Mm. With this journey as well in Afghanistan, how much of it connects to this lost city, the turquoise mountain? Were you going looking for it? And actually as well, could you explain to viewers what the turquoise mountain is? Um, I was aware that it was there. And I'd always, since I'd been a child, I mean, I loved things like Indiana Jones. I loved that whole mm. thing. Um, but I didn't think that I was going to find much. I mean, it was, it was a complete miracle. I came through a narrow, deserted gorge in the very center of Afghanistan, saw this incredible minaret, which in the classic kind of colonial fantasies was first discovered in inverted commas in the 1950s. But of course, the villagers would have been aware it was there for 800 years because they'd been living about a couple of miles from the base of it. And... Firstly, it is a stunning thing in the middle of nowhere. Taller than Nelson's column, turquoise blue tiles around the neck. And then I saw around the base of this thing, which archaeologists have believed was a lonely victory tower, villagers beginning in the weeks, weeks before I arrived to dig out of the ground. Ivory chess pieces, carved wooden doors, fragments of Chinese porcelain. And I realized that the villagers had uncovered 
a city that had been destroyed by Genghis Khan 800 years earlier and that had once ruled an empire that stretched from Delhi in India to Baghdad in Iraq. Could you talk a little bit more about these in, well, incredible places? Um, their place in history and global history, you know, the Minaret of Jam, um, the Buddhas of Bamiyan. Where do these artifacts, monuments fit into our broader conversations about history and the world we live in? So Afghanistan is absolutely unique. It's, it was the sort of ring road of the ancient world because all the trade between the great civilizations, China and India and Greece and Rome and the Near East, moved around Afghanistan. And on the edge of an American airbase called Bagram, they uncovered a hoard of trading goods, a couple of thousand years old. And amongst them are pieces of uh, glass from Egypt, ivory from India, uh, fragments of Chinese silk, Roman coins. You get the sense that in the world before globalization, Afghanistan was the kind of first really globalized trading community. But because it's very poor, because it's very mountainous, this stuff has been preserved in Afghanistan in a way that it hasn't anywhere else. And Afghanistan was one of the great centers of world civilization. It was the place where the West and the East met with these explosions of art. The first time the Buddha was ever portrayed as a human as opposed to as an abstract object was in Afghanistan. So central religion, central art, and of course, in the last 150, 200 years, the center of tragedy, because that geographical position then put it between uh, the British Empire and Russia, and then between Russia and the United States during the 1980s and the Cold War, and then put it again at the front line of the war on terror because Osama bin Laden located himself there. So it's a country of staggering beauty. Afghans are very, very unique people. I mean, I've never... It's difficult to describe a whole country without sounding like you're being weird and making generalizations. But I can honestly say there's nowhere I have been sort of so happy to live, so proud of the friendships I made. Um, and now, of course, it's, it's lapsed back into Taliban rule. It's a bit of a sliding doors moment, really, isn't it? You know, looking back at when you were there, the fall of the Taliban, early noughties, compared to where we are now. That moment when the Taliban falls, you decide you're going to walk across Afghanistan. Could you tell me a little bit about your sort of thought, your decision-making process there? Because, you know, regardless, it's an incredibly dangerous thing to do, right? You're going to be walking across mountains. The conditions are poor. But, you know, there's people running around with Kalashnikovs. You're talking about local warlords. Still, the Taliban are still there. Were you concerned about your safety when you were there? Uh, it, it's been, I think it's been, a, it's, it, it's a, question that I've been avoiding for um, sort of almost 20, more than 20 years, because that's when I, when I did the journey. And I think I was avoiding the question and I, I'd make jokes. I say, you know, I was doing it to, to impress women. I'd be like, did it work? I'd be like, no. Um, but I think I'm now, I've just become 50 and I think I've got enough distance from myself now to see that a lot of this are the kind of... Um, are the ways in which someone in their 20s projects these heroic fantasies on the world. I think I was 
almost feeling that I was living a life out of a kind of cartoon um, and that I would have these moments and I don't know whether other people in the 20s sometimes feel this but when you're doing something that really connects with your dreams you can sort of suddenly feel oh my goodness you know this is so exciting I'm on my own in the Afghan snow with my dog and here's somebody riding towards me with a horse and a gun and I I often try to make it seem more kind of serious and meaningful because, of course, I was aware at the time that, of course, I'm risking my life. Of course, you know, these are very, very poor communities and I'm very lucky to be able to travel amongst them. I'm a very privileged person. So I feel sort of slightly guilty and I have to apologize for it. But the truth is that it probably isn't very different from any young woman or man uh, going off to Thailand on holiday and thinking this is really cool. It's a pretty strong gap here, isn't it? Um, we're talking about your personal safety. I'd like to talk about that a little bit more because, yes, there were you know, guys with Kalashnikovs on horses, but actually it turns out the thing that was most dangerous to you um, were the conditions. There's a moment, right, when you're in the snow with Babu, your dog. You talk a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah, so I wasn't conscious, I think, completely how tired I was getting. So walking 25, 30 miles a day through snow. And... Villages in central Afghanistan in the winter basically only eat bread. There's no meat, there's no vegetables, no fruit. And I had been walking across the snow plain, and it, in this case, the gap between villages was about probably 20 miles, which, you know, you walk about three miles a day, so that's most of the day's walk. And it was a blazing hot day, and... I'd been going a few miles where I suddenly saw something that I could see ahead of me on this huge open snow plane, almost like crossing a glacier. And when I got close to it, I suddenly realized it was a, it was a corpse. It was a guy who'd been trying to walk the other way. I could see his footprints. So, so half melted in the snow. And he'd covered his hands in plastic bags, I guess, to keep them warm. And he'd just laid down on the snow and died, obviously, maybe, I don't know, maybe 12, 24 hours before I got there. And his face had been eaten by birds, and I'd never seen anything like that before. And I realized at that point that this crossing um, was tougher than I was quite ready for. Anyway, I walked on, and after another, I guess, couple of hours, I began to feel very, 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 very tired. And I, the sun was shining and I lay down on the snow and I felt two things. I felt I've done all I can be asked to do. Nobody can criticize me at this point for, for lying down. It's fine. I don't need to keep going. And this is quite nice. And then my dog, uh, came back and started sort of sniffing around me like it was a kind of joke. What are you doing? And then walked on and then turned around and came back and then barked at me and then walked on. And I remember feeling, you know, what a brave dog. Right? This dog doesn't seem to be having this kind of existential crisis. I guess if this dog can keep going, I could you know, probably try to walk a few more steps. So I kind of, I think I kind of followed my dog. 
and and the dog you know saved my life in the very matter of fact engaged partnership that a dog can have with a person and could you tell us then um what happened later to your dog yeah so it was most extraordinary privilege because uh in many ways, Babur. I mean, Babur. Obviously, I owed my life to 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 Babur, who was this enormous, great Afghan hound, who um, who walked with me, and we made it to Kabul together, where I was able to, you know, feed him well and rest him, and then we were going to come back to Scotland together, and I arranged it all with the airline, and we moved on to Pakistan in a taxi. This enormous animal with its kind of paws resting on me. Um, but he'd never been out of the Central Afghan mountains and I could see that he was getting very hot. And something went wrong with moving him and there was this sort of back and forth and back and forth. And in the end, a very, uh, a, a very kind journalist, war reporter, who'd been working in Afghanistan for many years, said, don't worry, Rory, you get on the plane, I'll look after him and we'll put him on the plane the next day and you can meet him in Scotland, um, big box. Big. And something happened. What seems to have happened is that he was fed um, a lamb ribs, and I think the lamb ribs broke and uh, must have uh, cut his stomach. He was taken, my friend took him straight to a vet in Pakistan. Um, but, but he died, and I mean, I felt very, very bad not to be with him. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I mentioned in the intro about your CV reading sort of like an eccentric colonial administrator working in Iraq, literally administering a province, um, your work in Afghanistan, walking across Afghanistan. I mean, is it an unfair criticism to, to say that your life is fairly analogous to one of those sort of Victorian imperial characters? I think it's sort of fair and unfair at the same time. Go on. So I think there's, there's no doubt that I uh, grew up with a real respect for... Um, sort of Victorian values. I mean, my grandfather was literally a Victorian. I, I, I come from a family where there's these huge age gaps. My father was 50 when I was born. My grandfather was almost 50 when my father was born. My grandfather was born, you know, in the 1880s. He was, um, he was in 
he, he lived in India for nearly 50 years. Um, you know, he was in India for the, the great you know, coronation ceremony of Edward VII, still the early uh, 20th century. Um, he served in the First World War, already quite old. Um, so that's part of me. And I loved my father, and he had that kind of worldview, and he'd been a British colonial officer. And he was very proud of it. I mean, it's a difficult thing to talk about now, but he'd been a district officer in, in what was then Malaya, British Malaya, in the 40s um, and 50s, and before that, Southern War. And he, I, I loved my father, and he was very proud of the schools that he'd built and the things that he'd done. And, you know, he still... We grew up in Malaysia after independence, and he went back for the Independence Day celebrations. So there's that, that's part of me. But I th was also very, very aware when I hit the ground in Iraq how much the world had changed and that actually this did not make sense anymore. I was, I think, given that the job was mad, reasonably good at my job. I, was, I loved working with local communities, I put a lot of energy into trying to build up the police force, open schools, get electricity sorted, try to stop small conflicts. But the truth is, there is no way that somebody like me, uh, in his, whatever I was, I guess, yeah, early 30s, should have been in charge of a province of one million people and then two million people. It's, it's mad. Um, and... The fundamental truth was, and this is at the bottom of the problems, these ridiculous messes in Iraq and Afghanistan, is that Iraqis and Afghans, quite understandably, did not want us. They really did not want us. I mean, they, it wasn't enough to say, yeah, but you, know, you got rid of Saddam Hussein, so surely things are better. Yeah, okay, we got rid of Saddam Hussein, and he was a horrible dictator, and Afghanistan got rid of the Taliban. But the truth is, Nobody wants to be administered by somebody from a completely different country, a totally different religion. And actually, I think I knew I didn't want to extend it to Britain. I mean, I don't push it too far, but it's a little bit of an echo with the problems of, you know, British government. Somebody sent me a tweet yesterday saying, you know, how can you be a, you know, what do you, how can you be a politician? You've never lived on benefits. What do you know about benefits? And I thought, that's absolutely right. And li listen, let me add to that. That's only the beginning of the problem. What the F do I know about transport, foreign affairs, defense, health, education, right? The, the whole idea that sort of reasonably bright, hardworking amateurs can somehow run a whole society is mad. And, and I think in the modern world, I don't want to sound too kind of radical about this, but there is a problem of what we call representation. Right? There's a problem of my representing an Iraqi, but there's also a problem of my representing a Cumbrian. And, mm. and I, I, that's not just that I'm a privileged Old Etonian. There is a fundamental problem with anyone claiming to represent 70,000 people or a country of 70 million people. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter whether you're working class, upper class. You do not begin to understand the full dimension of people's lives and the complexity of our society. So what are we talking about then, Rory? Hyper-localized democracy? Are we talking about um, hundreds more elected representatives, devolved power? I mean, what are you, what are you getting at? Yeah, so hyper-localized, uh, to start with, I really think we could begin by getting power much closer to people through 
really giving the mayors of Greater Manchester or West Midlands proper budgetary power, proper authority, I think they can come up with a much smarter strategy for jobs and businesses than London can, because they understand their context. But I'd take it right the way down. I wouldn't want the whole of Cumbria run from Carlisle. Mm. I'd really want to give, a bit like in France, local mayors real power. I'd also want to use citizens' assemblies, which is the idea of getting 300 literally randomly selected citizens, like a jury, to talk and think seriously about um, policy. And I'd want to say, we got to get beyond the I or you are representing people speaking for them and giving more and more space for people to actually speak for themselves and represent themselves. I mean, this connects a little bit to what I was talking about with the charity in Africa, that it's not an international NGO speaking on behalf of these communities. It's the international NGO getting out of the way and letting these communities actually define their own lives. How on earth are you, or for that matter, anyone, going to change these things you're talking about you know, in the, in the British political system that are entrenched because the, the people who have the capacity to change them, you know, our politicians, they have a vested interest in making sure that it doesn't happen, right? They have a vested interest in staying in power. Well, it's, 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 it's I mean, on the surface, it, it seems, obviously, like many of these things, it seems impossible until you do it. But the truth is that New Zealand managed to change their electoral system. And uh, other countries have created much more devolved systems. I mean, France changes its constitution quite a lot. Um, so I think one of the points that I'm trying to make in politics on the edge is to make people understand just how broken it is. And I think if people can try to, sometimes through, you know, I hope I'm reasonably funny and reasonably accessible, but a, a lot of the purpose of these stories is to get people to really feel what's wrong, how, how, how mad the system is. And then I think once you've felt that and understood it, we can then work together more confidently to fix it. We may have done this in a fairly roundabout kind of way, talking about your conclusions from your time in politics without actually the things that led you there. So let's talk about your first meeting with David Cameron. You go to him and you say, you know, do you want me? Um, which is a pretty bold thing to do. Um, tell me about your first meeting with the then Conservative leader and eventually Prime Minister. Yeah, so I, had, I was then a professor at Harvard University and there had been this expenses scandal and David Cameron said he wanted people who'd never been involved in politics before to enter politics. And I think I read this in the New York Times and I thought, ah, oh, okay, you know, maybe this is a chance to... Well, and part of the reason I wanted to do it is that I'd felt that in Iraq and Afghanistan, we often felt we were in these messes because the politicians. So if I could become a politician, I could kind of fix this stuff. But it was all very well my writing books or being a civil servant or teaching. But I was always on the fringes of things. I needed to get to the center of things in order to really change the world. So I went to David Cameron and said, um, look, I'm, you know, thank you. I'm very interested in this. Um, but obviously, if I'm going to move back from the United States, leave my job and things, I really want to know whether you really think that I can change the world. Can I, you know, am I going to be able to be a minister? Do you want people like me and you're your setup. And it became immediately obvious that he did not want me at all. Uh, he said, um, you know, remaining as a backbencher is one of the great privileges of your life and all this sort of stuff. But somehow, instead of listening to that and thinking, whoa, 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 this is a bit of an indication. This guy doesn't want me. 
the system doesn't want me. If I try to force myself into a conservative party that's not interested in someone like me, under a leader that's not interested in someone like me, I'm very unlikely to make much progress. I'd sort of caught the bug and slightly thought, well, screw him, I'll, I'll, I'll do it anyway. We'll come to how that worked out in the end, but before you got into Westminster, do you think you were naive? I was naive about so much about British politics. I mean, I, I mean I, one of the truths must be that I guess everybody's a little bit naive because until you've been in it, it's so bizarre, so difficult to imagine how it works, partly because politics is based on lies. It's based on pretending to the public that's different from what it really is, even in schools. So we're taught that Parliament that kind of scrutinizes and votes carefully on legislation. It doesn't. Right? Most of the time, the MPs have not read the legislation. In fact, they often, uh, often I would go into votes and my colleagues would not even know what we were voting on. We just go and follow the whips and vote. Right? So that's number one. Parliament is not really a legislative body. Number two, we imagine that um, MPs can simultaneously be in their constituencies all the time and in Parliament all the time and working full-time on their jobs as ministers. Of course, they're mad, right? Certainly, we pretend that MPs have real power over what happens to their constituencies. If you read the literature, you get through your door. They're like, I'm campaigning to duel the A66 or I'm going to do... It's all local council stuff. The MP doesn't have any power over any of this. But it's all pretense, right? So because of all these lies, which are basically that it suits the politicians and it often suits the media to pretend the politicians have this kind of clear, decisive power and authority and they know what they're doing. It's very, very unsettling to turn up in the House of Commons and realize that actually most of this is a sort of theatrical performance, that there is very little power anywhere, that you are largely powerless. And, you know, these words that you sort of heard in the back of your mind, you know, lobby fodder, kind of the whips, suddenly you're like, whoa, this is very, very much more extreme than I had begun to imagine. Where is power then? Well, in modern Britain, power is everywhere and nowhere. And it's very interesting. You know, the journalists think that the power lies with the prime minister. The prime ministers say, you know, I put on a lever, it's not connected to it, I can't get anything done. It's kind of civil servants. But the civil servants think, no, we're not making any decisions, we're being bullied and pushed around by ignorant ministers. Maybe the journalists have the power, and then, you know, and around it goes the circle. Or maybe the bankers have the power, except the bankers feel the politicians are screwing everything up. So, but it's very, very diffused. And some things happen, of course. But when they happen, I have absolutely no idea. Let me give you an example. Last time I saw you, the day that I saw you last, four years ago, I wasn't quite four weeks ago I saw you last, but last time we were here. Yeah. Um, I sent out a tweet saying, I'm really disgusted that there are no trees on Regent Street. Four years later, there are some trees in boxes on Regent Street. Now, they're not actually planted on the ground. They're in boxes of and die. But something's happened. I don't know, the mayor of London's done something, or Westminster Council's done something, or some business. Was that me? Did I help to make that happen through my tweet? Don't know. Is this thing ever going to be in the ground? We don't know. And it's taken four years. Seeing as you're talking about it, you know, that day here, I remember you were getting it, we finished our interview, you were getting it in the neck from Downing Street, calling for these more sort of uh, decisive lockdowns to take action sooner. You know, they clearly thought that you had some power at that moment in time. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was the classic example. So I felt that what we needed to do is lock down immediately, much more quickly, once the problem had started in Italy. And then we could lift the lockdown more quickly. Um, instead of which, initially, Boris Johnson was, I think, confused. He had instincts towards just letting it rip through, herd immunity, not taking it too seriously. And then he had other advisors saying you need to do something. They didn't know whether masks were going to work and all this kind of stuff. As soon as I took a clear line, I suddenly found the most senior people in government calling me. And you know, the chief scientific officer spent like an hour with me on the phone. And I was like, this is mad, right? You need something more important to do than to talk to me. Cabinet secretary is calling me, the health secretary is getting in touch with me. Because of course, they find it very uncomfortable seeing somebody who then left the Conservative Party as an independent, going to the media, challenging what they were doing, saying they didn't know what they were doing. Um, so you're right. The, the thing is very, very weird and complicated. And again, one of the things I think that politics on the edge is trying to explain is that the public shouldn't take the attitude towards politicians that a child might take towards an adult. They shouldn't somehow think these are people with immense sort of heroic power who, if things are not happening, it's because they're kind of evil or, or trying to get people. It's actually that the system is dysfunctional in the way that most of our jobs are dysfunctional. I, I, this, this book for me is a bit like, um, you know, maybe if you'd brought up, been brought up on a diet of James Bond novels, trying to say, you know, actually, this is the crap that goes on in the middle of an intelligence service, the bureaucracy, the paperwork, the silly ambitions, that, or somebody who thinks that, I don't know, being a doctor is always a kind of heroic, life-saving stuff, and actually I'm going to try to write from the inside of the NHS and make you understand why half my time is spent doing nonsense. It, it's that kind of book, and, and I'm hoping that through it, it allows us to have a more mature understanding of what's going on. After reading this, you know, I was left wondering whether you actually have any remaining political friends, because you're pretty uncompromising talking about you know, uh, David Cameron, who is sort of unthinking, wispy-haired and red-faced. Liz Truss comes across as completely unhinged. We know what you think. It's well documented what you think about Boris Johnson. And yet, you know, as a part of their government, as a backbench MP, you weren't just sort of allowing these people to exist, to govern, to be put upon the British people. You're actively supporting them, you know. And whilst your assessments about them now are frank, would they have been better at the time when these people were actually governing the country? Yeah. So I was a minister under David Cameron's government, strongly supported Theresa May. And then I resigned from the cabinet when Boris Johnson came in and left the Conservative Party. And I guess looking at my own conscience, I drew the line of Boris Johnson and the Liz Truss and what's followed. Because I felt that, yes, there were many things that frustrated me about David Cameron, but I still felt that there was a hope for a more liberal centre-right conservatism on him. He was doing, you know, I voted with him on introducing gay marriage, on increasing international development spend to 0.7% GDP, on pushing ahead with net zero targets, on localism. So 
I think it's important for me to sort of understand that I'd been very put off the Labour Party under Tony Blair. I mean, I'd been a Labour Party member, but I hadn't liked it. And that's partly because of my experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. I thought it was very, very technocratic. And, and that's actually, Iraq and Afghanistan revealed a lot, I felt, about the Labour Party, that they sort of thought that some smart people in London could come up with a map for nation building and then go to somebody else's country and kind of do it. So it was, I think, I guess, a belief in the wisdom of local communities that brought me. I was the only person who believed in this uh, thing that everyone would have forgotten about called David Cameron's Big Society. Right? I kind of thought this was a real thing. I get why I did. Um, so there's no doubt I was a conservative. There's no doubt that I voted with the whips for a lot of conservative measures. I became a member of these governments. I bear absolute responsibility for what happened between 2010 and 2018, I guess. And then I tried to fight to stop things getting worse. I tried to, you know, I voted Remain. I tried to fight for a compromise, a soft Brexit, customs union Brexit's what I was pushing for. And I was totally defeated. I lost the customs union vote. I stood to be prime minister. Boris Johnson defeated me. The party set off on this rightward lurch got into culture wars, starts wanting to ship migrants to Rwanda and all this kind of stuff. And I left the Conservative Party because I no longer recognise it. When you joined the Conservatives, they were a centre-right party under David Cameron. I don't think you can say that's the case anymore. You know, Rishi Sunak, for my money, is the most right-wing prime minister since Margaret Thatcher. And actually now, I think it's possible to describe the Labour Party under Keir Starmer as possibly a party of the centre-right. Um, and I'd also actually be particularly interested in your assessment of Starmer's relationship with Blair, because they're talking to each other a little bit more now. What do you see as the centre in British politics? Well, I think that the problem for the centre, and, and basically the fight, is between the liberal centre ground and populism, right-wing populism. Because this new iteration of the Conservative Party is not really conservative, it's populist. So how does the liberal centre ground respond to that? And the biggest mistake that the liberal centre ground always makes is to think that it can somehow return to the world of the 1990s, the world of Tony Blair. The truth is that that world collapsed, and for a good reason. The economic policy of that world was shattered by the 2008 financial crisis. Political visions, democracy visions of that world was pretty shattered by the rise of China, the visions of a liberal world order collapse and the humiliations of Iraq and Afghanistan. Social media has created a new polarized environment. You can't go back to that world. And one of the mistakes we make is we often sound like we're a sort of tribute act and that we're trying to stand up for that. So you have to begin by saying we got a lot wrong. Actually, a lot of the results of that were shameful. The economic policy of Thatcher, John Major, Tony Blair... Gordon Brown and then austerity under David Cameron has led to stagnant incomes, really, to put it very politely, massively underwhelming productivity in this country. Um, uh, our debt has been stretched to a position where it's very difficult for the government to borrow anymore. Our public services are underinvested and the division between London and the southeast and the outlying areas is really, uh, it's unacceptable. So all of that gave the fuel for 
firing up populism. The problem is the populist solutions that are childish and often offensive. The, the challenge for the liberal centre ground is not just how do we communicate again with a bit of moral authority and emotion, but where are the new ideas coming from? I mean, you talked about the fact that Keir Selma hasn't got a manifesto out. That's the key. If the liberal centre ground is to have any real credibility, it can't just say, spend its whole time being like Boris Johnson's uh, a liar and a charlatan. He is. He's a massive liar. He's a massive charlatan. He's a terrible human being. But he's gone. And we need something more. You know, I think you can view Farageism, the UKIPification of Britain, call it what you want, as a reaction, right, to that centrism of New Labour and Tony Blair. For listeners, you know, who are looking for a more recent example, you can look at France and Macron. You know, he smashes the traditional parties, but then also emboldens the far right with Marine Le Pen, you know, um, Front National. How can you say or suggest or argue that the answer to this populism is liberal centrism if, po if populism is a result and a consequence of the centrism that came before it? Well, you, you've put your finger on the problem, right? So, so uh, you can't defeat the revolution, which is the populist revolution, by trying to recreate the old regime which they're fighting against. You've got to find something else. And that's partly, and I, this is why I think politics is always about these dynamic tensions. So just as the centre is really about the tension between the left and the right, the new centre has to be about the tension between the old centre and the populist challenge. It has to accept that the populists have got a point about a lot of the problems. It's just they haven't got the solutions to them. Do you see that happening in Britain? Best, best stab at it, to be fair, is probably in Joe Biden's administration in the US. Now, there's a lot of problems with Joe Biden. I mean, I'm very, very worried about the next election because I think he's looking very frail, and I think that's not going to help him against Trump. But I do think that they are the one example I can see around, no, maybe Macron too, of people who are able to communicate and deliver what seem to be clear new ideas out of the old liberal centre. And how do you see yourself fitting into that? I think the challenge is where does this come from for someone like me? And I think what Joe Biden suggests is that the energy for that is now more likely to come from the left than the right because the right has so much abandoned a lot of the things that kept the liberal center going, that, it, that it's, it's progressive, moderate figures on the left that may, that may take that forward. You know, we've been talking um, about your book, but there's another side to you as well, as well as your charity, obviously, and, you know, you're a former politician, but most people probably know you as a result of your podcast, The Rest is Politics, um, one of the most successful, the most successful podcasts in the country, millions of downloads every week, and I'm thinking about, you know, um, other politicians who, Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak, they can't sell out the Royal Albert Hall in less than 10 minutes. They can't pay someone to listen to them speak for half an hour, 45 minutes at a time. And, let, and yet you're getting people do this. Millions of people do this on a weekly basis. That can be an incredibly powerful tool for a politician, can't it? To be able to speak and have people listen to you. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very valuable asset, isn't it, for someone who's thinking about possibly returning to politics? Well, 
I think first thing to understand is that um, being a successful podcaster is, of course, helpful in all the ways you say, but it's not enough to being a politician. It's a very different thing. And yeah, of course, you know, uh, people who become well-known and probably the most depressing examples of this are people like Trump, Johnson, Berlusconi can harness that kind of public awareness to, to launch political careers again. I think that at the moment, what I really need to do is get the ideas clear that this time, if I go back into politics, I need to have a very, very clear diagnosis of the problem, a very clear vision going forward, that I don't want to go back into it. And this is kind of a lesson of the book, Politics on the Edge, is that politics is more than just public service. It has to be also about new visions. I went into politics thinking it was a bit like being in the civil service, that I just, you know, I'd get my department, I'd work hard, I'd try to understand the brief, I'd try to do a good job. And you can't really do politics like that. You can't really change a country like that. It was only when I was able to realize that the way that I could bring a bit of change in prisons, reduce violence in prisons, is by saying, I will re resign in 12 months unless violence comes down. Suddenly then things began to happen. Or when I was in uh, Section of State, Cabinet, I'd say, I'm going to double our spend on climate and the environment. Suddenly things happen. That you're not looking to politicians really to be administrators. The system isn't set up like that. Hopefully they have some understanding of administration because their ideas have got to reflect practical reality. But what I want to do is not get involved in this thing again until I can give you a very, very clear description of what our economic policy is going to be, how local government's going to work, how we reform our constitution, how our foreign policy is going to work, and be able to express it in clear sentences. I know, you know, I often grumble about three-word slogans because get Brexit done, take back control, did a lot of damage. But there's a wisdom there. If you can't reduce something to a single sentence, you probably don't fully understand it yourself. Compared to the last time we spoke, you know, there's a direction of travel there, isn't there? Because before you were saying, oh, you know, I don't, don't want to do this or, you know, I can't, I can't do that again. But you're talking now about ideas. You're talking about policy. You're talking about ways to make it happen. Well, I was very broken. I mean, this book is about failure. I mean, you know, being, being rejected by colleagues and voters to run for the leadership is pretty bad. But being rejected for Boris Johnson, right, is... is, is extreme pain. When I could sort of understand that people would be like, you know, we would prefer Jeremy Hunt. He's a more experienced um, politician or people prefer Sajid Javid, who I liked. But to be like, we are literally going to choose this intemperate clown in preference to you is a very, very strange thing. It would be like your partner leaving you for someone you utterly despised. Tell me a little bit more about that, that the sort of the pain that followed Boris Johnson kicking you out of the party. Well, it feels like the most extreme failure because the stakes were so high. I mean, I went in very idealistic and then I convinced myself, particularly in the last year or so that I spent in politics, that we were facing a, the most fundamental existential challenge, that our country was brutally divided between Brexiteers and Remainers. 
half of Brexiteers saying they wouldn't speak to a Remainer. Only a quarter of Remainers prepared to allow their child to marry someone from the other side. I mean, this was horrible. I felt Brexit, a hard Brexit, would be catastrophically damaging, not just to our economy, but to security in Northern Ireland. And more important than that, I felt we were fighting for decency and our constitution and a particular way of doing politics against what Boris Johnson represented. So this felt to me like the biggest fight of my life. Suddenly politics made sense to me. I wanted slogans. I wanted the kind of fight. I wanted to go to people. But if you invest that much in a dream and it becomes that important to you, and you really convince yourself, as I did, that Boris Johnson was a shame, but also a real corroding, poisonous danger to our whole constitutional system. And that he was going to polarize the country, destroy most of the things that people took. So he was going to destroy trust in institutions. And you lose. It's just horrible because you spend your whole time thinking, what could I have done? You know, what did I fail to do? How did I? And if this is the only thing that gives your life meaning, which it felt like in the last year and a half of my life, and you've totally failed to do it. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's horrible. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm sorry to have to leave it on that relatively uh, sour note, but we've run out of time. Roy Stewart, thank you so much for taking the talk. Thank you. Lovely to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.